You're listening to Ryan Anderson's Model Railcast Show with your hosts, Craig Bisgeyer and Tim Harrison. We're bringing you the latest news, reviews, and interviews on the hobby of model railroading. The Model Railcast Show, keeping you on the right track. All right, Model Railcasters, we're back. Semi Weneverly, as Craig put it, uh, we've yes. got <laughs> that was great. <laughs> it's so true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> we got Sh- Craig. It's show two thirty three. Get out. So yeah, I know we're we're piling on, and you know who's coming up on show two hundred is uh, Model Rail Radio. They are, uh, I think, yeah. they're on one ninety six, and they'll so they're going to meet that two hundred mark pretty yeah. soon. Of course, the way that they run things, they're you know if they ran the same number of hours that we do, they'd already be on show five hundred. So, you know. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's true. Yeah, what you get your money's worth with that one. I yes, you. you do. Yes, you do. It's great for those long drives when I got a. I know I got yeah, a nice like long from, trip. you know New York to California. Yep, yep. So, <laughs> Craig, how's everything going? Everything is good. Thank you. Good. Everything's going quite nicely. Um, no one has gotten sick lately, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we are still in the time of the Rona, of course. Yep. So I, we've had a few people at my office who've uh, who've come down with it, but for you know, since we're all working from home, it has not been a big deal, which is good. I mean, certainly it's a big deal for them, right? You know, right. But uh, <laughs> but I've been relatively safe, so that's good. Yeah, same here. Uh, our offices, uh, we've we've had two people come down with it, but. There are people who don't come into the office much, and so we've been pretty much able to isolate them and stay pretty clean. They they want us to go through a Rona testing next week, so we'll do that just to make sure everybody's Woo-hoo. on the safe side. Yeah, I can't wait Yay. for that. <laughs> You're getting that swab stuck in the bit of your brain. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which, well, <laughs> which there's, you know, that shouldn't be a problem. There's not going to be much that they'll run well, into. Well, there's not much to hit in there. Yeah, exactly. Swipe <laughs> it around, you know, bring it out a few times. A lot you know. of empty space. There's a lot of space. So, uh, I, Craig, I have, uh, the summer has been crazy. It was really busy. So I wasn't really able to get anything done. I, I did go out to the layout a little while and stared at it, uh, the other day. Uh, well, I shouldn't even say layout, but the bench work and, uh, oh, I, uh it counts. yeah, it counts as something, you know, it's like it's something that's it's at least the wheels were turning in my head, but, uh, how's things going on the Housatonic? Well, actually after, you know, through most people through the pandemic have been actually, getting tons and tons of work done on their railroads. And I actually wasn't getting anything done uh, until recently. I actually finally got the bug to actually go down there and go do some things. Uh, And uh, I've actually been working on a couple of projects. Uh, I started about two weeks ago. What I've done recently is I've worked on two projects. One is a a large uh, mill building that I've had you know, sitting in Danbury mm-hmm. for literally years now. It's basically a kit-bashed version of uh, the Walther's Front Street Warehouse. Okay. And uh, so that, but I got three kits and I put them all end to end. So the building's six feet long. Oh, nice. That's, <laughs> yes, well, big it's building. Huge. It's great. But uh, the problem is that I got about, you know, a quarter of the way into the project and then I lost interest as I always do. And, uh, you know, it's been sitting there for a couple of years now, Kind of half built and kind of, kind of really. So I finally got around to uh, 
I just, what I needed was a roof for it. Okay. And I was really not looking forward to the idea of doing individual shingles for a six foot by six inch long roof panel. That would take about a year, oh, you know? Yes. <laughs> so I was like, what the hell am I going to do? And I actually came up with the idea. I had one uh, roof panel left from a an old IHC, International Hobby Corp, uh, what was it? Novelty Ironwork. Okay which was a really nice uh, slate shingle roof panel, which was about a foot long by about six inches wide. And I thought to myself, self, that looks a <laughs> lot like what we could use, but I need like 12 of them and I have one. So that started me thinking, well, you know, I do have these skills and I can actually make a mold and I could cast myself up a bunch. And so, so self and I said, let's do that and got out the old uh, casting materials made a mold. Uh, I, I digress, but uh, I went to go make the mold and found out that the uh, literally quart of modeling rubber that I had had all gone bad. Oh. So it waited a couple of days until I went down to Blix and I actually picked up a new uh, a new uh, couple of pie quart of it and uh, made myself a nice mold. And uh, fortunately, my uh, resin still worked, so I poured myself 12 copies and uh over the course of a couple of days and then uh then i took them and i sanded the backs and everything and i got them going and they're now painted at least uh well not really painted but at least uh primed okay and they're ready to go uh but then i started getting onto because you know how i am i can't just like stay concentrating on one project <laughs> yes, yes never could probably never will uh but i had this idea again for years now of doing a model of the Makahimo Hotel, which was a really nice, ornate Victorian structure, big, that sat across the street from the train station in South Norwalk. And I determined a couple of years ago that I was never going to be able to build the station. It's just not enough room where it needs to go. And I thought about making a flat of it, but it just wasn't going to work. And then about a year ago, I was going through some old kits, and I found I had uh, one of the old DPM uh, three-story little kits, right? It's okay. like uh, three, three windows across, three windows high, about maybe four or five inches high and about two and a half inches wide. Uh, and I thought, look at it. I said, well, this has the arched windows and everything. It really looks a lot like the Mac one of the sections of the Makahima Hotel, which was also three stories, and it had a number of repeating sections that were three windows wide and three windows tall plus some additional areas which had some extra work to do but i thought i could get if i was to take this and change it around just a little bit i could actually get like 80 90 percent of the model all set you know like that so uh, what the heck i had the casting rubber so i made a mold of the dpm which i made a, a cup and then i made a couple of copies of it cut those pieces up remade them the way i needed them mm -hmm. and then made another mold of that and then i pulled out about 12 or 15 castings of that uh that gave me like i said about 90 percent of what i needed um in real life those sections are separated by a uh, pilaster which is a raised section that uh, goes in between these things which actually ended up on each one the top with a uh a smokestack so really really neat looking and i thought well i could model that I, you know, it took me a day or two to kind of put that together. I said, but I could do this in the computer in 3D and just, you know, print it off real quick. And so I spent about an hour putting it together, another hour or so printing it. 
And then I made a mold of that <laughs> and uh, <laughs> made up all those. And then for the, uh, there's like four sections that are four stories high. And those had, uh, were basically the same, but had a, uh, how do you put it? Um, doors to come into the hotel or okay. the shops, which were lined lower floor. And so I, I took some more of the uh, castings that I'd done and cut out three door sections, put them together, added them to one of the other sections, and then built up the top to have some little round windows at the top, made another mold. <laughs> Dang, bro. <laughs> and then, yeah, I know, right? And then <laughs> I cast four of those, and now I had all the parts that I needed. So I took them, and I, I mean, I must have cast about 17 or 18 of the, the chimneys, pilasters. And over, over the span, about a week or so ago, I, I, I kind of sat there and I glued them all together with epoxy. And now I have this really nice three-foot-long building, which very closely is the Makahimo Hotel that's basically a flat. It's only about a quarter of an inch, but it's going to go right up against the backdrop, and it's going to represent that hotel in downtown South Norwalk across from where the station was. So I've actually been, like, crazy busy over the last week and a half with stuff going on on the layout. Yeah, man. Wow. And, of course, if anybody see what I've been up to, the pictures of it are all up on the Model Railcast site on Facebook. So, right. so Craig, going back to the slate roof you did, how did you manage the, the junction of the segments when you put cobbled uh, six of those one-foot segments to get a six-foot long chunk of roof so you didn't have obvious joints at the slates? I'll let you know when I figure it out. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done it yet. <laughs> but what I do, you'll be the first to know. Okay. And that model Wellcasters, you're hearing the voice of Dave Emery and Craig, you introduced me to Dave. Um and how long have you known Dave? Very sorry about that. <laughs> huh? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. Dave, how long have we known each other? It's gotta be ten years. Maybe At more. Least. Maybe yeah. closer to fifteen, because it was the original Early rail group. Um, um, yeah, that's right. Group. Yeah, going yeah. all the way back to, uh, oh God, what, maybe even before Yahoo groups, I think. Yeah. When yeah. it was, I forget what it was way back then, but, uh, you know, and now, of course, we're on, uh, what is it, um, IO, wherever it is, groups.io.com, yeah. I think. Groups.io. But, yeah, but we've, yeah, Dave and I have been, you know, talking to each other and sharing notes for years about different things. And uh, Dave's given me, you know, great uh, research from time to time. And I've helped him out with some models. And, you know, we've we've had a great partnership for a long, long time because both of us, in 1900, it actually has worked out very well for both of us. Yeah, and then, and then Tim was the the, uh, the carrier for the great tobacco factory. Oh, that's right. I remember. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, still one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of uh, uh, modeling on my railroad, I must say. I'm glad it, it has lived to the test of time. So, <laughs> Oh, it absolutely has. It is still uh, definitely a, a jewel uh, down there. Uh, not too far away from where this hotel I'm putting in is, by the way. Oh, okay. So give us a geographical yeah, idea. Just around the corner, really. Great. All right. Well, model railcasters, we'll take a break and we'll be right back.
We've got Dave Emery on board with us, and Dave, I think we had you on a long, long time ago. I can't remember when it was, but it may have actually been when Ryan Anderson was still around. Oh, we've had Dave on many times. Yeah, okay, that that makes yeah, sense. We used to have that whole segment with Dave, like, ask Dave questions, right? I mean, the, the, for the tool tips. Remember that? Oh, the yeah, tips? that's right. That's that was, right. like, ages ago. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, and Dave, how's everything? coming back, which is amazing. What's that? And he still keeps coming back. He does. He does. <laughs> we have, we have a few of those that keep coming back. So Dave, how's everything going? Oh, pretty good. We we moved to New Hampshire, and in retirement, and one of the core requirements was a nice, dry, unfinished basement, which I got in this house. And actually, one of my geology projects was finding out exactly why this basement is so dry, but it is, and I'm very thankful for it. So then. Um, um, spent a fair chunk of money to finish the basement, and including putting in a, um, a bathroom down there, which was about half the cost. And now I have a nice train room, a shop with a bathroom, and also some unfinished storage area, which, of course, is all filled with stuff. Nice. <laughs> uh, you, you, I think that's required there, there to be an area that's just... Well, we all stuff. love stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, now, as as mentioned, um, and we have some things that we're going to talk about, but um, you along, you are modeling a similar era along with, the, or at least you were, along with Craig Biscar, correct? Yeah. Yeah, um, my railroad is more or less set in 1898, and I say that because I will nod and wink and run stuff up to about 1910 if I like how it looks, as long as I know that it's really an anachronism. It really doesn't belong. But, I mean, who can resist that Little River 2442 uh, Maui um, hauling a bunch of ore cars? But uh, but the, the, the normal cutoff is 1898. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and what railroad are you modeling? Well, it's freelance. Um, the idea is to connect the Pennsylvania oil country with New England um, mill country by the simple expedient of basically cutting out everything between the Susquehanna and the Connecticut rivers. Okay. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, is this little time warp thing that goes on? <laughs> well, and the space warp too. You know, it's, it's a, was it a tesseract? A wormhole that uh, shows up yeah. and the trains magically move. I guess as a, as a geologist, I could say there's a hell of a graben fault that fell out and, and took <laughs> awesome. out large parts of the continental shelf, and then the shelf um, uh, tectonics took over and realigned. So now the uh, the Connecticut River Valley and the Susquehanna River Valley are essentially one valley. I go. like it. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your track plan. Um, you, you you worked it with a planner, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I had um, uh, you know the, a list of given and druthers. Um, I particularly I, I wanted to fill the, the the primary train room, plus I could go into the shop room um, for both staging 
and for the big yard because, you know, a, a, a nice big yard and engine terminal takes up a lot of long running space and had a, you know, a min radius and some kind of general ideas. So one of the problems that when, when they finished the basement is I thought I had this really nice rectangular room and then the building inspector said, you have to build a 30 inch by 30 inch closet around the electrical panel in that corner of the wall. So now I have this nasty little jog out of one corner, but I, I managed to you know, route the track around that. And then it goes um, along one wall, comes out to a nice peninsula, goes back down um, to the back wall. And then one, one line comes up against the staircase and the other one goes underneath the staircase into the other room, the shop room for open staging and also a, a metal gate, a drop gate. Okay. So I can connect the, and, and run a single loop, but it's not the normal mode of operation. The normal mode of operation, if it ever gets completed, would be to make up a train mm -hmm. in the yard, run it around, do its business, stop it at the staging, run a train out of the staging, run around, do its business, take it back to the yard, break it down, compose a new train, etc. Excellent. Excellent. And Craig, have you had a chance to see Dave's track plan? Uh, yes, I have. Not only have I had a chance to see it, but I actually had a chance to help build it. Ah, sweet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, after we got the, I got the, um, the, the bench work done, and then Craig volunteered to come up because he said, you really should do splines. And I said, mm, I never tried that before. So Craig says, it's easy. I'll come up and show yeah, you. It's easy. So he came up for a weekend, <laughs> and we did splines. I got a, a, an industrial strength glue gun and some industrial strength gloves and had previously ripped out masonite strips. And Craig and David White and I um, spent what, about a day and a half, and we got most of the main line run in on the splines. Yeah, it was great. It went very quickly. Nice. Very and, it went, yeah. and I tell you what, the spline stuff is just amazing. It's, I mean, of course, that's what we used on my railroad, which is why I had so much experience with it. And uh, I tell you, the stuff is great. It, it has great natural easements, and it's very quiet, you know, because it's got a lot of, of volume and like that. And it doesn't, you know, vibrate like uh, foam does. Right. So it makes a really great... Uh, you know, home, uh, bait, right, we're bed for the, uh, for the layout. And you yeah, know, the idea we'll do natural easements was a real attraction to me because, mm. um, you don't want the trains, especially when you're running, um, on relatively short radius to sort of lurch into a curve. And I didn't really want to have to try to sort of calculate the easements, although I knew I wanted them in, in the, on the track plan. So letting the, the wood do the work for me was a real convenience. Okay. Definitely. Gotcha. And Craig, just for the noob, uh, could you just describe what, what spline is real quick? Oh, of course. Uh, well, there's a couple of methods of doing it. Um, basically, what it is, is you figure out more or less where you want the track to go. Uh, and then you uh, support it uh, either from grid bench work or from L-girder. Uh, you run a whole series of uh, risers where the, the track is actually going to go. And then you start by uh, either using masonite, quarter-inch masonite, or uh, lath, uh, which is basically, I think, quarter-inch wood, about an inch wide, uh, that's very popular this work. Um, or you can use um, homestone. Some people use half-inch homestone. 
Mm-hmm. I don't particularly like the homeless help myself, but it can be very successful. And what you do is you start off from an area where you have a large flat area like a yard or whatever, which is usually uh, done in plywood. You cut a notch in the end of it and you stick the spline into that, glue it in, and then you take it and you start pulling the spline out and going along the tops of the risers. And you don't glue it down yet. You just kind of put in screws or nails in the top or along the center line and kind of the spline kind of sit in between those and come to its own radius and easements and everything. Uh, to continue on, you take uh, about a six inch overlap and you uh, hot glue one spline to the next, or I guess if you're using wood, you use wood glue. Uh, and then you continue on and you get about, you know, uh, five or six different lengths. So about, you know, 40 feet long, uh, following all these risers until you get to another spot when it's basically just one spline long, and then you can start adjusting it. You can move the supports or whatever like that until you get the flow that you really like it, and you can also do things like if you want to have a straightaway you can clamp uh, a metal bar to it and that'll hold it flat while you laminate uh more splines onto it and that's the next part is to actually sit and laminate with hot glue or with wood and lots and lots of clamps uh <laughs> basically yes. you go along and you start adding uh more splines to it which are basically like i said a quarter inch uh wide and a uh, inch wide and so you add them on one at a time and build out the uh sub road bed that the track will eventually be laid on and as you do that building it up from one side and the other one side and the other until for ho scale you get about uh an inch and a half wide uh what happens is as you laminate these pieces together they become very rigid and they'll hold the shape that you're trying to uh go ahead and, and create uh, and when it's all said and done, you take it and you take a, a belt sander or a plane uh, and you kind of sand down and make the top of the whole thing. Because you, you try the best you can, but you know it's going to end up a little uneven. Um, right. But you do that, you, you sand it or grind it or, or plane it until it's flat. And then when that's all done, you put on a homoso or cork, depending on what you like to use as a subroad bed. And then you lay your track down on that. Okay. All right. Very good. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Much appreciated. Yeah, well, you're welcome. <laughs> now, now, one thing that in, on my track plan is everything is is basically the track is all dead level, at least for the standard gauge. The the narrow gauge spur um, does run up in elevation, but that way I don't have to worry about those little four four O's and their weak motors trying to mm. pull up and down grades. Okay. So before I did that, I I got one of those laser levels and set out the track zero and ran that line all the way around the room so we had that as a reference point whenever we were whenever we needed to check at something we could put a level on top of the splines butt it up against the wall and see if the height of the splines was exactly at ground zero okay yeah and that actually worked out really well that made everything go a lot quicker all right very cool all right. Now, um, Dave, you mentioned that um, laying track is the least favorite part of your hobby. <laughs> you care to elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> well, um, when I start, the first thing I had done, actually, was while we were, they were still um, doing the basement, is I grabbed um, Code 70 and Code 83 track, a couple of different brands, the Walter Shinohara, Pico, the new Pico Code uh, 83 U.S. prototype, uh, 
uh, the microengineering 70 and 83, painted it up, laid it down, looked at it, talked to people, and then decided that to go with uh, ME Code 70 FlexTrack as the primary, um, essentially the primary track, because I thought it looked the best. Then for turnouts at the time, the only choice you had were, um, I think they were number number six. ME only had one size turnout left and right in in code 70. So that meant anything else I was going to have to use um, scratch built. So I got a, a bunch of um, uh, handle tracks, of fast tracks jigs, including some um, jigs for uh, curve turnouts because there were a couple of places where um, the track planner and I agreed that a curve turnout would work really well here and a regular turnout would not. So uh, mm. I then spent some time learning how and then building turnouts, um, got that stuff all together, um, thought I was good to go. Then unfortunately, you know, I had a full season of, you know, winter, summer and came back and there were a fair number of track kinks. So I tried to straighten that stuff out as best I could. Oh, I, I put the the track down on the uh, the Homabed sub road bed with a thin layer of bulk laid with a uh, it's actually a tile trowel so you have a uh, you get that little serrated um, jagged edge to it thin it out really good and that lets the uh, caulk dry pretty quickly and doesn't and if you thin it out enough it will not squeegee out between the ties so uh, which made which meant when I had to go adjust track because I got kinks it was relatively easy to slip a thin putty knife underneath and slide it around and loosen up the track and then cut some notches and, and relay it. But um, just not what I really like doing. <laughs> Understood. Yeah, well, believe me, no one likes doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also built a, a test bed, um, just a little assembly, mm -hmm. and tried out one of the um, Tam Valley Depot's uh, switch right switch machines. Ah. And I really like those, so I've I've used those on the narrow gauge in particular because my small narrow gauge spur all runs in places where I really couldn't reach it. Okay. So I knew I needed switch machines there, and I haven't decided if I'm going to do switch machines or blue point manuals or what. Um, but I did take the oh um, I did take the. Uh, um, the, the self-latching parts off. So I will have to do some sort of switch machine on all the turnouts, whether it's an electrical switch machine or a manual one. Okay. Um, you know, I did. I decided not to have put your finger between the track and flick the track. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yes. Can, can I know a lot of people do do that, but I can't stand that personally. Yeah. And the other thing I did was I ran um, the power bus and then the drops, and then wired all that stuff together. I used suitcase connectors, connectors to go from the heavy-duty bus to then Wego lever connectors, and then the, the, the Wego, uh, Wego or WEGO connectors, um, the track feeders come down. So those are lever connectors. It's real easy for me to um, unhook um, the track, the track feeders, um, when I started, I glued those, hot glued those in place, but um, that didn't work very well. So then I yeah. went to um, adhesive tape, um, double-sided tape. That didn't work very well, but finally Wago has come out with 
um, little plastic holders for their connectors. So I have those, and as a connector breaks loose because the glue joint failed, I will then screw in one of those little plastic things and snap the uh, lever connector back in place. Oh, yeah, we talked about putting something together for that at one point and 3D printing it, didn't we? Yeah, um, we, we did, and I think somebody had done that, but, um, you know, I need a bunch of them. So I bought um, I, you know, 50 to 100 um, of those because every, every block gets t- um, two connectors, every feed. Right. One, you know, one, one for one rail and the other for the other rail. And it's a little, I won't say overkill, it's a little deliberate, but I have found that deliberation and obviousness is a good thing in wiring. Oh, yeah, that's good. And you probably made the right choice instead of waiting for me to get around to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But the, the double stick tape worked okay. Um, it really doesn't have quite enough um, sticky to hold the connector um, with all the torque of, of moving the lever. So I have to do, that's a two-handed operation, one hand to hold the connector and the other hand to flick the lever. But um, as long as but as long as they stay in place, I'm okay. I don't want them dangling loose underneath the the track. Right, right. Okay. Um, if I could uh, go back real uh, real quick a second, um, just I was looking at no, your track. No, you may not. Okay, I, I kind of figured. <laughs> I was just looking at the track yeah, plan, <laughs> and uh, that's how we do stuff, folks. If if you're not used to it by now, you know you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, did you have any, uh, I know you said you're freelancing, but was there any prototype that you were drawing from, uh, for, for any inspiration? Oh, yeah, lots of inspiration. I would say the, the biggest single inspiration is the Colorado Midland, which was a heavy-duty Rocky Mountain Railroad um, that was basically active from about 1880 to the USRA period because the USRA ran it into the ground. Um, but they had, um, it's very well documented. They got, had big sort of mainline power, um, including a Valkling compound 280, which I happen to have a model of. Um, and I also depend a lot on books on the Rutland, um, Pittsburgh, Shawmut, Northern, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of Boston and Maine, but, um, um, but if, if I had to pick one prototype, I would say it's Colorado Midland in the Alleghenies. Okay. All right. Very cool. One of these scenes of interest on that track plan is got to be your Mill Valley scene. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, that was added or, or conceived because I needed to figure out what I was going to do in front of the door um, to the utility closet. Now, the door opens inward, so at least I don't have to worry about the door coming out. Um, I wanted to design something that could if there was a you know, catastrophic wiring failure um, where the electrician wouldn't spend all day ducking under the track, that I could remove <coughs> that. Um, so <laughs> I, I designed the benchwork to be a potentially removable section. Um, and then I said, oh, this looks like fun. What can I put here? In particular, um, it was a place where I could, could easily construct a drop well below the, the track grade. Okay. And, you know, I always wanted to do a mill dam, so um, I just kind of started playing and said, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll do a mill dam. Um, and in particular, a rust green, New England, browns, or North, North New England brownstone. I need brownstone. 
came out with this mm-hmm. wonderful stone viaduct kit. And I had, when I saw that, I said, I have the place for this. This will run really nicely across the large gap in the front of the layout with the mill valley and the, the, the buildings kind of pointing back to the dam and a backdrop behind it. So in some respects, the, the scene was really designed to show off Russ's nice aqua, um, viaduct, stone viaduct. And then the buildings were scratch-built to fit in place. Um, my, my geology knowledge kind of looks at that and says, well, that's really not quite right, but it, it's close enough that I will um, ignore some of the geological anomalies. Um, <laughs> the dam in particular is probably a little small for the two mills that it's shooting, and the runway, the spillway creek, is definitely too small for that volume of water, but um, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> so I scratch-built. Um, the first building is in brick, and that's based a bit on a, a, a mill building here in Dover, New Hampshire. In particular, it has a, a fairly distinctive cupola, which I, I scratched. And then on the other side is a stone mill that's, you know, um, in theory, the original, the first mill on site, because it's stone rather than brick. And that's um, patterned fairly closely off a mill. It's in Slater's um, in Rhode Island, which was the first kind of New England mill town. So there's some prototype strong influence on those. Plus, I bashed some, some other parts to go behind. I put a dock in there to, to, for, uh, to run a coal hopper to power the... Uh, the steam heat for the mill. Um, I, I have some work to do to get the outflow, and then I have planned but have not poured the water because that's the next big thing that goes there is the water. On top of the dam, uh, my wife colored for me. It's nice having a, a, an artist. Um, yes. Yes, a piece, of, piece of plastic that I then put a whole bunch of coats of gloss to match the um, trackside scenery backdrop. So I have a backdrop vertical. I have this basic piece of plastic jammed up to it that you have to look to see if there's actually a joint there. And then I'll do the spillway over the dam and then down to the, the creek that flows underneath the, uh, vi- the stone viaduct. Okay. Excellent. I found boards that were um, half inch thick by four inch wide by, um, oh, probably, I think are probably 36. So I could set the, you know, the distance for the thickness of the car, which is, you know, less, less the size. So it's, it's roughly an inch and cut to where I would have um, a whole bunch of pieces that were one inch or actually I think it was just slightly or a little bit more, a little bit less than one inch, but precise, duplicated five or six or seven pieces of this wood that was the precise um, width of the car subwalls. Mm-hmm. And then I used my modeler's table saw. I could also have used the chop saw to cut the length to side and did the same thing to get end blocks. So it's if you've ever seen the old wood car kits from ye old Huff and Puff, I think maybe Silver Street or um, LaBelle, I mean, that's how a lot of those were built was with a, a precisely cut large usually pine under under frame, and then you put the scribe siding laminated over that. So so I used the, the, the miter saw to get those cuts first, and that worked out quite well, actually. Okay, very cool. 
the one other thing I oh, had to do is is I had I used um I, I wanted to keep the cars fairly skinny and I, I had to take northeastern um roof stock, which is um, mm-hmm. cut at an angle, so it, it has the roof profile, and skim a little bit off of each side. I did that on the modeler table saw. So I took a, a piece of that about 24 inches long and ripped um, probably a 30-second off of each side to preserve the you know the roof pro- profile, but to get it to the correct width so that I could then put a scribed wood or scribed siring roof on top of that and have that subroof fit within the same thickness or, um, as the pieces I did okay. on the Rennermiter saw. All right, very cool. All right, now, one of the things that you have to had to do, as you mentioned in your track plan, you have narrow gauge and you have standard, and there's at one point where you needed a crossing belt, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, I, I was there was kind of no way I could get the operational concept I wanted without having a cross at some point. So I accepted the challenge of at some point having to do that. Um, by the time I tackled that, I had built oh probably eight or nine fast track turnouts, um, standard gauge, and I built some fast track HON3 narrow gauge turnouts that I decided weren't good enough, so I got rid of those and actually ended up redoing um, Pico HON30 turnouts, but uh, soldering ties on, kind of the same as somebody means that you do with the Fast Tracks jig. And when I was comfortable with um, all of that, then I thought, okay, let me try to do the crossing. Now, the first thing I did is I had two pieces of straight track. One was HO standard gauge, and the other was the N30 narrow gauge. And when I was running, um, I could do all I could do standard gauge dropping in and putting the real joiners in standard gauge track, or could remove that and do the thing for the narrow gauge track. So I could test the standard gauge and the narrow gauge before tackling the turnout or the crossing. Then what I did is I took a piece of paper, put down the standard gauge track um, and a piece of chalk, and then I ran the the chalk over the rails. So I essentially produced a tracing, okay. if you will, of both the narrow gauge entry points without any any track on the crossing and the standard gauge entry points plus that uh, little six-inch piece of connecting track. Then I, I tacked that down carefully, removed the standard gauge, put in the narrow gauge, finished the tracing with the piece of chalk on that, and what I ended up with was a perfect tracing of the actual crossing. So I didn't have to do any math, not that I'm afraid of math, but I have to figure out what that angle was or anything I had actually a tracing to assemble okay. on. I did measure the angle just because I was interested. It was, I think, 30, I think it was, what, 37 and a half degrees. Um, but more importantly is that I had, and I went to the computer, scanned it, photocopied it, printed out a couple of copies, and then worked on a copy. So that way I could do the actual Mm. assembly, um, cutting the various pieces of rail. And some of those pieces got really small and finicky. And on top of ties, glued to the, um, this tracing of the actual, of the actual uh, uh, crossing. 
So I could lay the rails on a piece of paper, go back and move onto the ties glued onto another copy of that. And I had had to, to redo a couple of the joints, um, usually because something slipped when I was soldering. Oh, I did invest in a good soldering workstation, one of those electronics workstations where you can control the temperature. Um, that turned out to be a good thing um, to use for this. But over about, oh, I'm going to say two weeks of, do I have the patience for this? Eventually, I got it done. I cleaned it up. Um, I put it in place. It did fit. You know, everything lined up. <laughs> then I went back, and I carefully cut the gaps um, because, of course, a crossing will short the hell out of things if you don't cut the gaps correctly. Mm-hmm. And then I worked out the wiring. And that's kind of how it sits, is that what I want to do for wiring is the first thing is that the standard gauge will be DCC eventually. The gauge probably not. So that means that I can't have a common rail. And what somebody advised me, which made sense, was to make sure that I had a, a, a really significant gap between the DC rails and the stand, the DCC rails. So before and after the crossing, there's a short piece of essentially dead track. That has track feeders. Then there are track feeders soldered to all the different parts of the crossing that have to be powered. That's a fair amount of wiring. Now to control all this, to control the crossing is a double throw, standard versus narrow, four pole switch because essentially there's, there's, if you will, four states for each of the four corners of a crossover. Then I needed additional um, logic so that when the crossover was after standard gauge, the feeders, one on each side of the crossover, those guys would also be activated with the DCC current and the equivalent HON30 um, pieces would be totally dead. So that gave me an electrical separation between DC and DCC that was more than just wheels running over a gap. Right. Now, since I've got to control all that, I had the bright idea because I already had the kit of a ball signal. So what I want to do is control the whole nine yards with a little Arduino that also controls um, an animation of the ball signal and raises the ball when the crossover is set for HON30, lowers the ball when the crossover is set for standard gauge, and while the ball's in motion, everything is dead. Now, pretty easy logic. Um, I still have to figure out exactly how I'm going to move the ball up and down. I have some ideas, but um, that's one of those projects I have. I think I know how to do this, but I haven't started it yet. But wiring up or actually, it's not so much wiring, but, but controlling the crossover will be a whole project right. in itself. But I made sure that everything was electrically run trains across it, um, one or the other, not at the same time. Um, definitely went over it with track, um, you know, filed it, um, did all the stuff to make it as reasonably proof as I could. And in particular, I ran very light cars over that when I was testing it. Because, as you know, a, a car with no weight is the most likely thing to derail. Right. So I was doing really, really light cars over that, back and forth, back and forth, and I think it'll work. Knock off. Yeah, that's that sounds like it's going to be a heck of a problem, but uh, definitely uh, 
definitely something to keep <laughs> us uh, progress posted on. Uh, it'll be interesting to hear how that goes. Well, yeah, I, I did. It was good to learn about Arduino because I mean I've done programming, um, but I haven't messed right. with that stuff. So I got you know the usual starter kits and played around for long enough and got to the point. So yeah, okay, I know how to do this. Learned a little about right. servo control because I'll probably run the animation with a servo. Um, so confident that I can, you know, always confident that I can right. do the software. I think I know how to to run right. the ball. Um, I just got. What I'll probably do is build a a prototype off the layout get all of that stuff running, particularly get the ball running, and then take it over to the layout and reinstall okay. it. Very good. Very good. So talk to us then um, about the, uh, the mentioned the engine house, cold shed, and water tank for the HON30 line. Yeah, the, the, the basic prototype for this line is the Munson Railroad, the mail, mail, main two-foot that ran down from slate quarries. So in one far corner, I have um, a school. I will do a slate quarry. It's about the only thing you can build, if you think about it, prototypically on an inside corner. Um, and at the other end, and what's what's really the the in exposed staging is also where the narrow gauge line ends. So there's some track there, and I did some significant changes to the track plan to add more M30, so I could actually operate that. In particular, I needed a runaround, so I could drop some cars, run around, come back, move them around, shuffle them. Um, and I needed, because everybody has more engines than they should, a turntable. <laughs> That's for sure. That said, I needed an engine house to store them, and, of course, the engines need coal and water. So the the turntable is a Kitwood Hills kit, very nice kit. Um, comes from England. I also have one of the standard gauge turntables uh, turn to build. Um, includes all of the mechanisms for powering um, the the turntable, which is really nice. The engine house is a Kennebec Central prototype that I had to adjust the sizes of things because the HON30 engines are, of course, a little wider than the two-foot prototype, and I think they're a little taller. Um, the colon shed was interesting because I started with a standard gauge kit, and then if you will, cut it down. I scanned the drawings and basically played with various, you know, printed them at 60%, 70%, 65%, and laid a HON30 engine and said, ah, oh, okay, if I do this at 65%, the height of the structure looks right to put coal into a smaller than standard gauge um, tender. And then the, the uh, water house was... Uh, was actually uh, um, the one Munson prototype I have for my Munson inspired, and the, the, the three of them together, um, I think, are going to look really good. And they were um, all scratch. Well, two of them were scratch built, and the other one, the uh, coaling thing, was kit bashed. Had a lot of fun doing those um, and laying out where they're going to go. It looked like that part's going to come together quite nicely. And I even took pictures of the engine house, you know, the water tank, and sent it into the uh, NER region um, virtual uh, model contest because it's the closest thing I have to actually prototype. Um, and you know, in a, for an NMRA contest, you know, if you're not 100% prototype, you're just blown out of the water. So <laughs> we'll see how I get scored on that. <laughs> nice, nice. And one of the things that uh, I noticed on the track plan, um, and you mentioned it here, is that you have a, uh, a drop gate so that you can get into the other part of the layout. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I, I wanted to be able to run continuous loop because sometimes you just want to sit and watch the trains go around. It was not the normal means. I wanted it to be really strong, you know, because we're clumsy and we get clumsier as we get older. Um, and I found online these extruded aluminum parts that are used for um, serious prototyping, for um, they're, you know, they will hold 100 pounds. Um, they're really strong, but I could get cutoffs of those at four-foot lengths pretty cheaply. And they had nuts and bolts and, you know, um, things you could use to assemble them. One of the things they had was a very solid barrel latch. So I built this drop gate with a post, their hinge, which was set up, easy to set up so that um, when the gate was up, it was perfectly level and really strong. And on the other end, I had to do a little bit of finagling for the, um, the barrel latch against the post, the, the extruded aluminum post on the other side. Um, made sure that was all really sturdy and really, you know, dimensionally lined up. And then I put some plywood on top of that, put some homo on top of that, and then rigged up for now um, a, uh, a little connector, you know, plug-in connector. But eventually I have some ideas on how I'm going to um, do that so it will essentially wire up itself. And there's, there's a, a dead block on either side that if the gate is not in position, those blocks are not powered. So as long as I'm not running a keep alive, <laughs> right. and the gate, a train will come in there and, and just, um, when the gate is up, which is, it's normally down, but the gate is up, then um, I can duck under it prisily. I will con snap in the two connectors, and then the trains can run around the loop. And I have run trains across the loop, of course, um, watching them very carefully. And the major reason I haven't run much is that um, eventually I'll put... Um, some safety plexiglass on either side, and I'll have things filled in what are now open gaps on either side of the track. But for now, if there's any hiccup, the locomotive is going to take a nosedive, and nobody wants that. Oh, I should mention, I did buy an Atlas RS2 diesel. Um, I wanted a reliable diesel for testing purposes, because if the diesel won't run, there's no is ever going to run. So, hey, boy, I tell you. Yeah, so, so I have, that's what I've been type testing. And the same thing for, I found a cheap, slightly bang up, but still works, HO diesel, N scale, because HON30 is N scale track. And I use those two diesels okay. to do the testing. Um, and then eventually, um, when I, if I ever get to the point where I operate, those will also have the power and the weight to push around the track. Okay, very, very good idea. Okay. So, so if the diesel takes a nosedive, I will be very upset, but not as upset as I would be if any of my steamers <laughs> took a nosedive. But more importantly, like I said, if the diesel doesn't run like clockwork, then right. I have a track problem. And I think that's a, that's a good way to, to um, evaluate your track, make sure a diesel runs well, a nice big heavy thing, um, work out your track bugs with that, and then right. try the steam. All right. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I agree.
uh, I guess sort of the <laughs> not to close out the show on a bummer note, but I'm guessing you guys have heard about Springfield by now. Yeah, oh, of course. Unfortunately. And yeah, with the Rona, you know, it's not surprising. I mean, yeah. everything, you know, is <laughs> falling before it. So, you know, the good news is that uh, recently it was posted that uh, one or two of the companies vaccine and that uh, people like you and me might be able to get our hands on it by the middle of next year. Yes. So who knows? You know, if it works yeah. out well, they've, they've said good things about it. We might be able to have Springfield again in uh 2022 yeah yeah I'm, that I'm, would be great yeah i'm putting some one of the frustrating things about springfield the last couple years is nobody's carried stripwood so um i try to keep of both evergreen styrene and stripwood a fairly good amount of bench stock and i've done some orders usually combination of track building products and then mount albert stripwood um just got some of that from canada but um I do try to keep um, a, a fair amount of scratch building supplies, strip wood, styrene, um, windows, doors, that kind of stuff in stock. Um, so I know we're near like like Mike Baker, but then I'm not doing it for a living either. But that's probably yeah. saved me because there's nothing more frustrating than not having the part when you are ready to use it. Yes. <laughs> So true. You'd be printing because so if you don't have the part, you just make it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the that is the beauty of the three D printer. Yep. yep. Well, yeah, it it's, a, it's a little tough to make strip wood. Um, well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll give you that. <laughs> and I think actually having one at least one package of every size of evergreen styrene strip has basically paid its, its itself um, for um, ability to do something to recover from a stake. Um, you do any really serious scratch building or kit bashing, that's an investment that you that really does pay for itself. Um, I have the same thing for wood, but I really like having basically possible, um, and sometimes, you know, I'll glue some to get like a piece that is 070. I'll glue an 040 and an 030 piece together. It does work. And if it works, then yeah. by golly, it's good enough. <laughs> That's right. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, getting caught up. And it's been it's great to hear what you're doing. Um, and uh, do you have? Are you making a blog anywhere? Or are you just posting to to Facebook? Uh, progress on your, on your layout? Um, yeah, there's a there's a, there's a, some free you know or I guess it's pre depression groups. So some couple of things on Facebook. Um, there's some narrow gauge groups and when I do I've been doing the HON thirty work. Um, but there's no what um the, the various online forums, especially when I do a, a fairly significant project, either railroad line or uh modelers forum, but there's no one place and there probably should be that I say this is where to go if you want to see what I'm working on. Gotcha. Well, maybe you can remedy that in the future then. You know, I started a blog, but it was kind of like, mm, do I want to sit and do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely don't hesitate to post photos on a Railcast show Facebook page and so we can see what's going on, and we really appreciate you coming on. Oh, one other thing I should mention. Um, speak, speaking of, of scratch building supplies and COVID, um, Hunterline finally found a source of industrial alcohol, so Hunterline stains are back in production. Um, they had to cut out for a while because they couldn't get any alcohol because it was all going for um, COVID sterilization. So uh, price has gone up just because they got to pay for everything. 
but um, at least the stains, which I use a lot. By the way, um, for styrene, if I want it to look like wood, as I, I think it's called styrens, there's a badger mm -hmm. that's a neutral yellow, uh, kind of a straw yellow, is I'll spray that and then I'll put hydrolyzed stain over it, and that looks a lot like oh. wood. Um, two steps to get plastic to look like wood. So I'm glad to see um, hydrolyzed stains are, are back on the market. That's really good to know. That's good to know. All right, model broadcasters. Craig, thank you so much for coming on, helping to pilot the ship. Oh, always my pleasure. And Dave, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on. We really appreciate you uh, your time on the show. Well, thanks for the invitation. And I'll try to put together a couple of pictures of some of the things we talked about, send them to you so you've got um, some, some pictures to show, particularly of the gate, because I'm not sure how well I described okay. that. It's, it's a little difficult, but... Uh, I did take lots of pictures. Not all of them are worth showing. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. All right. All right, Model Railcasters, that's it for 233, and we'll see you for 234. Woohoo! Sometime before the end of the. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, all right, Model Railcasters, have a great week. And of course, what we open the show with, we close the show with. The Model Railcast theme. Till next time, guys. You've been listening to The Model Railcast Show. You can find us at www.modelrailcastshow.com or on Facebook at Friends of MRCS. And look for us on iTunes. Don't miss your other great model railroading podcasts out there. The Scotty Mason Show, Model Rail Radio, A Modeler's Life, and the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. And drop us a line if we miss mentioning you. This is Amy Perkins for the Model Railcast Show. Have a great week.